when fear increases, it is a sign that people are increasingly distressed and increasingly out of control. And that's what we have now. We have globally an out-of-control situation. You just heard the voice of the American poet Mary Rufel, who is my guest on today's episode. My name is Lynn Ullman, and together with the House of Literature in Oslo, I've created the podcast How to Proceed, where we engage writers from around the world to reflect upon reading and writing, art and creativity, and the world we live in right now in the historic year 2020. When Norway went into semi-lockdown in March, I found myself turning to fiction, nonfiction, and poetry for much-needed conversation and reflection. And one of the authors I turned to was the remarkable American award-winning poet, essayist, and erasure artist, Mary Ruffel. Among her many works are Dunce, My Private Property, Trances of the Blast, and Madness, Rack, and Honey. Mary Ruffel's work spans many genres and forms. Her language is a language of solitude and wonder, beauty and wisdom, and yet she's also very funny. Through complex layers of history and culture, she explores the ambiguities of identity, art, memory, desire, and grief. I am recording this introduction at home, alone, under a blanket. My dog is keeping me company, but I'm here under the blanket exactly as our dedicated sound technician slash editor, Helena, has instructed me to do. Find a small room, Helena said, preferably with the pillows, sit under a blanket and pull a sock over your phone. Speak slowly and in a normal voice, not too loud, not too soft. In the year 2020, with the pandemic raging and stress rising, these are meaningful instructions and fitting as a prelude to my conversation with Mary Rufel. In this episode, Mary Rufel talks about reading and writing, about fear, about aging, menopause, and the freedom of invisibility, about erasure and time, about being in the margins, being under a blanket, if you will, and of course, about the love of dogs. Mary Rufel, welcome to Oslo and welcome to the House of Literature and to the podcast studio five minutes away from the House of Literature in Oslo. I am just so honored and so happy that you are speaking to me today. This is something that I've looked very much forward to and I wish I could welcome you live on the stage of the House of Literature, but this will do for now. Thank you, Lynn. And I am very honored to be speaking to you. Welcome to my tiny little study in my tiny house in the tiny state of Vermont. What are you looking at right now? I am looking at a pillow because I was told to put a pillow against the wall and speak into it. (laughs) And the pillow is propped up on a dictionary stand, and there is a very large dictionary open on the stand, 
And on the dictionary, I keep a very old black and white postcard from the 19th century showing a man and a woman looking rather grimly at each other. And in big letters underneath, it says, you're not in this. (laughs) And I keep it on my dictionary. It says, you're not in this. Tell me more about that. Why do you keep it there? I I find it very funny. It's like you're not in the dictionary. I I have a very strange sense of humor, I suppose. But every time I look at it, I laugh. So I'm 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 imagining it right now. It makes me laugh, too. Do you have the dictionary open, did you say? Yes, it's in the elves, like your name. Ah. So the word, uh, it's on the page where it says literary, and this is random. I didn't choose it. I'm just looking now. I had no idea. But actually, it's on the page that has literature, literate, literate, literary, literal-minded, which I am, and all of that. And the composer list and the English word list and things like that. Well, that's wonderful. That's a wonderful segue to my, my usually my first question to my guests is what are you reading right now? Right now, I'm reading a, a biography of the Brontes. And in poetry recently, I have gone back to the 17th century English poet George Herbert, and I'm trying to reread the tale of Genji, but I thought I would not be able to put it down when I started to reread it, because when I was 20, I could not put it down, and I started to reread it. And I don't know what happened, but I don't love it as much as I did in my 20s. It's either a problem, I'm reading a different translation, or I'm simply no longer interested in men who endlessly seduce women, which is basically (laughs) the tale of Genji. I thought I would not be able to put it down when I started to reread it because when I was 20, I could not put it down. But I find that it's very easy to put down. So that's a mystery to me. I don't know if it's Genji or the translator, but there you go. Could it be you? I mean, don't you find that that your relationships to books that you loved at a certain time, that they change? It depends on the book. For instance, my relationship to the tale of Genji has clearly changed, (laughs) but my relationship to Proust has not changed. Well, except it's gotten even better. Mm. Um, Some books I love even more when I reread them, and some I like less. It depends on the book, Mm. you know? Mm. And the same is true for poetry. are there poets that you read with a passion when you were in your 20s and that you don't particularly like now or vice versa? I think if I love a poet passionately, I tend to love them passionately forever. But there are many poets I did not appreciate or understand when I was young. And now I approach them very differently and I think I'm more accepting 
as I age of writers whose sensibility I do not innately share. I think, I can't speak for everyone, but for myself, when I was young, I liked what I liked, and you had to be in, you know, it's like there was a little club or group, and I liked very specifically, you had to be in that club for me to like you, which is very, very immature. But uh, now that I'm older, we ever, ever increase, ever widen the circle of brotherly love. I am much more tolerant and open to things that I, sh- when I was younger, I shut myself off from. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And you know, it reminds me of the conversation I had with your colleague, George Saunders. And I had greetings from you to him with a question, because that's what we do in this podcast. We share questions between authors. And, you know, he had a question for you. And why I'm giving you that question now is because it reminds me of what you said, because you talk about that you are a much more generous reader and more attentive reader in many ways now than when you were young. And I wanted to ask, you know, does that also go for writing? And I thought, actually, that question is something that George Saunders wanted to ask you too. And and I want to read that question from him because it relates to what you're saying. So I'm going to read that question that he wanted to ask you. He said, I have a question for Mary that I would like to ask her. Here's the question. So can you remember some of your earliest work that you would consider not your best now because you've grown past it? And what changed between that early beginning work and the beautiful work you do now? Because I think that you're one of our greatest poets. So what's the nature of what you've learned in that interval? And then he says, and please pass on my admiration too. She's wonderful. It speaks directly to to what you were talking about reading, but does it also go for writing? That's a wonderful question. And I would probably have to think about it to give a fully articulate answer. But off the top of my head, I would say clarity. Clarity is something I did not have in my early work. You know that, except now we're going into cliches, that the horrible cliche of a writer's voice. When do you find your voice? And there are so many responses to that. Uh, There was an American teacher and poet who used to tell his students, why do you want to find your voice? Once you find it, you are stuck with it. which I always liked. And then I know another poet who tells their students, you find your voice when you begin to write good poems. That's something to think about. Mm -hmm. Certainly. But um, I know the book in which I found my voice. It's a book called Cold Pluto. Mm. I don't really go back to my early work, but I will say this about, about early work. It's no different than reading early diaries or journals. And I think I will use the example of a journal or diary, but I'm also speaking of my own poems, okay? 
When you keep a diary or journal at the age of 18, 16, 17, 18, when you are 22 and 23 and you read it, you want to burn it. You do, you want to burn it. But if you wait and you do not burn it and you wait until you are 37 and 38, you will have gained compassion for your younger self. And it may be when you're 45, you want to burn it again. But when you're 55, you love your younger self. So I am not interested in my early poems, but I don't hate them. Hmm. I have compassion for my younger self, and I see things in them, you know, that I admire. I, I couldn't go back there. I couldn't be that person. I think we are talking about the older I and the younger I, but I do, I have compassion for their weaknesses, hmm. where there was a point in my life where I just wanted to burn everything, or I was embarrassed by it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I am, there's so much to unpack there. And, you know, for me, your writing is very much both your poetry and also your essays and lectures and everything in between. Your writing is so much, uh, almost like a manual for living. And I want to talk a little bit about Madness, Rack and Honey and also My Private Property, two of your wonderful, incredible collections of essays. And I want to share some of the titles to the essays in Madness, Rack and Honey with our listeners. Apropos a manual for living. On Beginnings, Poetry and the Moon, On Sentimentality, On Secrets, Eight Beginnings and Two Ends, On Fear. And there's this one title that I, I love so much. Someone reading a book is a sign of order in the world. Can you tell me uh, about the genesis for Madness, Rack, and Honey and, and why? Because I know I'm not the only one who reads it like a, like a living instruction, as well as, as instructions in poetry and, and writing. And what I want to know is both how you collected these essays and how this book came to be. I was required to give lectures to stand in front of an audience of graduate students in poetry and give lectures. And I hated the idea because I had attended many lectures that I found very boring because they were too concentrated on like literary terms or this or I, I just wanted to make it fun and interesting for myself. I didn't really care what the requirements were. So I said to myself, I can talk about anything in the world and I'm still talking about poetry. So I gave myself a freedom to make things interesting for me. And after I had them collected, my editor asked to look at them and liked them and decided to publish them. But the single most interesting thing to me which I do mention in the book, is that the words madness, rack, and honey appeared to me in a dream. Huh. I, they came in a, in a dream. I didn't make them up. Hmm. So then when madness, rack, and honey appeared to me in a dream, I wrote a specific lecture called madness, rack, and honey. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. 
tell me more about that. Did the words appear to you or did you have a dream? I dream in language, not all the time. I, I have dreams which are narrative, you know, like movies, film, most of our dreams. But then from time to time, I dream of phrases and sentences and fragments. And when I wake up and I have a dream which is purely text, I must use it in writing. I must use it in a poem or an essay. I must use it in something that I'm writing. I set that rule for myself a long time ago because if this text is given to me in a dream, I consider it a gift. Even if it's very silly, I must use it. But so these got collected, yes. Now, I will say this. When I actually gave them in person, they were very different because usually at the very end, after the end of a lecture, I would play a very specific piece of music. And very sadly, the music and the visual component, I might have a very large blown-up image that I could point to. Those things could not be incorporated into the written version. But sometimes we allude to them. Uh, in the essay on secrets, I talk about the soprano, Vidusayo, the Brazilian soprano. Um. Let, let me ask you something there, because that, that's interesting. And I wanted to talk to you also about another essay in the book, which I thought was fitting. And I thought a lot about fear. Well, I always think a lot about fear. Mm -hmm. And I think you do too. And you've written an incredible essay about fear. So I, I have two questions. One question is, since you mentioned music, is did you have a piece of music that went with the essay that you've written on fear? No, there was no music with fear. I don't know because I think that was one of the early essays and I had not yet started to play music. But you know, the subject fear today, I think the whole world is in fear. Mm -hmm. I mean, things are mad. It's madness, you know, globally, it's madness. So I think fear is ever-increasing, and that is not good. I think when fear increases, that is a very, very bad sign. Why? When fear increases, it is a sign that people are increasingly distressed and increasingly out of control. And that's what we have now. We have globally an out-of-control situation. And, I mean, we have an out-of-control situation with COVID, yes, but we also have an out-of-control situation with so many other things. Uh, I'm speak addressing climate change right now and the environment and our own innate destruction. Um, fear. If one can overcome fear, everything changes. If you can overcome your fear of death, you know, what's the worst that can happen in any given situation for, for individual human beings or family units or death? If you can overcome your fear of death, then all the other things you're afraid of don't matter so much anymore. 
At the same time in this essay, you write, the world functions because of fear, because of the error, the anti-constraint, the anti-perfect, the anti-balance. We stumble, we fall. So your essay also makes a case for fear, uh, even for the necessity of fear to live and to write. Yes, that's true. I mean, it's it's inevitable. You can't avoid it because it's hardwired. Because we are animals. <laughs> we are mammals. Mammals sense danger. You, is this a good time for me to read the beginning of the essay on fear? I would love to have you read the beginning of the essay, Fear. Thank you. Okay. On fear. I suppose, as a poet... Among my fears can be counted the deep-seated uneasiness surrounding the possibility that one day it will be revealed that I consecrated my life to an imbecility. Part of what I mean, what I think I mean by imbecility, is something intrinsically unnecessary and superfluous, and thereby unintentionally cool. It was a master who advised that we speak little, better still say nothing, unless we are quite sure that what we wish to say is true, kind, and helpful. But how can a poet whose role is to speak adhere to this advice? How can anyone whose role is to facilitate language speak little or say nothing? I don't know if other poets have this fear, but if they do not, I reason it will only increase the anguish of the outcome if it one day passes into being. To pass into being. Now there's a fear no one ever had. No one ever feared being born. Even when all those responsible for the event were fraught with fear for the unborn. And if I may segue to a child at the age of four, I recall watching a four-year-old girl being approached by a dog that was, well, much larger than the girl herself. The girl's face was astonishing to watch. It was completely elastic and changed from an expression of wonder and glee, please come to me, doggy, and we shall play. Oh, what happiness to be approached by you. To, in less than 10 seconds, an expression of sheer terror. Fear, fear, doggy will eat me up and mommy is far away. As the dog slowly crossed the room, in what could not have been more than two minutes, the girl's face changed expression so many times I gave up counting. As she oscillated between feeling secure and insecure, it struck me that her face would probably continue to change, albeit at a slower rate, every time she was approached by a dog for the next couple of years, one day coming to rest on that expression that was likely to signify forever how this human being felt about dogs. But something seemed to be missing from my neat little formula. Surely the dog's face was important, too. This dog was eager and friendly, if a bit clumsy, but what if the next dog took a good-sized chunk out of the child's face? I asked the poet Tony Hoagland what he thought about fear. 
He said, fear was the ghost of an experience. We fear the reoccurrence of a pain we once felt. And in this way, fear is like a hangover. The memory of our pain is a pain unto itself, and thus feeds our fear like a foyer with mirrors on both sides. And then he quoted Auden. And ghosts must do again what gives them pain. It is interesting to note that this idea, fears being the ghost of pain or imaginary pain, figures in psychological torture by the CIA. In fact, their experiments with pain found that imaginary pain was more effective than physical pain. Poets take note. And thus, psychological torture more effective than physical torture. Here is an excerpt from their exploitation training manual written in 1983. The threat of coercion usually weakens or destroys resistance more effectively than coercion itself. For example, the threat to inflict pain can trigger fears more damaging than the immediate sensation of pain. Although I have never been bitten by a dog, I am scared to death of them, as I am of all living creatures, including myself and my own fragmentation in the long hall of mirrors. Thank you very much. Now, Lynn, that was, that's the beginning of an essay on fear that was written in terms of my life a long time ago. And it was very interesting for me to reread it because I was afraid of dogs until I was in my late 40s. I had already written this essay, and I fell in love with a dog. And it was through direct experience with a dog, compassion, communication, in whatever ways we can communicate with a dog. And I had a dog as a friend, and I learned to love dogs. Late, late in life, late 40s, almost 50, I now own a dog, and the, I love the dog as much as I would love a child. So what changed for me was the actual experience of observing another living being and getting out of myself. So my attitude with dogs changed because I opened myself to their experience. And just like we were talking earlier about going back and reading early work, early journals, early diaries, I look back and I see now that I treated so many animals like things. My father had a dog, a little dog he loved, but to me the dog was just a thing. And I did not understand the deep, deep intimacy my father felt for his dog. I now understand it, and now I feel very differently. And that too, I mean, it's life, life astonishes me. Emotional growth, inner growth. And not only did I treat many dogs like things, but I treated many human beings like things. Many, many adults I treated like things just as I myself was treated like a thing by many adults. But now I wish, I wish I knew then what I know now, 
And I would not treat these people like things if I could go back, which I cannot. So my relationship to dogs has changed since I wrote that. And I now have a new essay, which will be in my next book, which is about my relationship to this very particular dog who I, I did not own, but my neighbors did. Now, can, if I can make a joke, <laughs> I don't want to offend anyone, but I still treat cats as things. <laughs> Dear cat lovers, please do not be offended. I meant it in good humor, but I, I, I have not yet experienced a compassionate relationship with a cat. I am a cat person who has dogs, but I'm not offended. Oh, okay. I'm going to say something personal to you now, because as you know, my colleague and dear friend and producer of this podcast, also named Lynn, uh, she and I text every day about this podcast. And I have two dogs. I have a little dog. Uh, and a big dog. I have an old dog and a young dog. And the, the little puppy dog yesterday took, because your book, Private Property, was lying on the floor in my living room. And the little dog took the book and ate it. Oh, I love it. I didn't immediately go and take it away from him and, and you know, tell him not to do it. I actually took up my phone and I filmed it for 30 seconds. And then I sent it to my colleague, Lynn, the little film bit of my dog, my puppy, eating your book, yes. Private Property. And we texted back and forth. Now, would you be offended if we showed you this little film or would you appreciate it? I would appreciate it. I think it is absolutely wonderful. And I hope very much that you show this film with the interview. If you will let me read a poem about an animal eating a book. Absolutely. Do you have a poem about an animal reading a book? Absolutely. I do. And I'm trying to find it. I think it might be in... It's in the selected. I'll find it. I'll I can add while you're looking that the little dog who ate your book also ate Emily Dickinson's collected poems. Oh, well, that dog just got so much literature to digest. <laughs> Literally, yes. Oh, I found it. Oh, wonderful. I got it. And I, I'll read it. Just let me turn to the page. The title is The Meal That Was Always There. It was a dangerous day. The earth was shining and the sun drank its joy. The little goat was chomping columbine. All the babies smelled the sweet milk. The old folk sold their recipes. All the women followed them. The men ate, pulled off their boots, and wiggled their toes. The trout responded to the water, and the hermit found his herbs nearby. The radiance of circles had never been wider, more one inside of the other. Who began to feed the goat the pages of a book? Who began to feed the goat the tragedies of Shakespeare? What do we do without them? Oh, thank you. Thank you for reading it, and thank you for finding it. This conversation is taking a whole other lovely direction than than what I had expected. And 
Now, your little dog eats Emily Dickinson, and in the poem, the goat eats Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. So much for literature. It's <laughs> fodder for animals. There's always that possibility. It reminds me, in my backyard, I keep an open book. It's a very old encyclopedia from 1910. I keep it open outside through all the seasons, winter, snow, rain, and it slowly disintegrates. The book is now nothing but a wad of chewed-up paper. It's three-quarters gone. And I was looking at it this morning and thinking it's time to put a fresh book outside and let the weather eat it. You know, I have to share something with you when you, you're telling me about the book from 1910 in your garden and how the weather is eating it and how it disintegrates. Um, in March, when Oslo closed down, I live, very, I live close to a park, to a local park. Mm-hmm. And I was desperate to do something other than just checking news. So I started translating poems and texts to Norwegian And I started posting poems on light poles in the park. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't stop. I just kept posting poems and texts and pieces from novels to different light poles uh-huh. anonymously. But what reminds me of what you said about the book being eaten by the weather, because now they're all withering. Now they're being, you know, the poems are blowing away. They're they're being eaten by the weather here, too. Oh. And I'm documenting and taking pictures of all all the pieces of paper that are disappearing. Oh. And I find that as interesting as or even more interesting as when I actually posted them in the park and they were on fresh white paper. And I guess my question to you is, what is why this interest in things that disappear and vanish and wither? Well, everything that disappears and vanishes and withers can only remind us of the fact that we ourselves wither, disappear, and vanish. And it, it reminds you of the natural cycle of all, of all things, both animate and inanimate. It is the nature of things to wither and disappear. And this goes back to fear. So many people fear that. And of course we do, and we can't help but fear it. But if you can get over your fear of that, not get over, but if you can lessen your fear of the inevitable withering and disappearing. And it goes back to midlife. I think all midlife crises... They're all about intense fear of withering and diminishment physically. Mary Ruffel, I wanted to ask you about, because you you write about, you know, beginnings and you write about endings. Mm -hmm. And this podcast is called How to Proceed, which I guess is kind of what do we do in the middle? And you are are a writer and a, an essayist and a poet who writes very much about what do we do in the middle. And and I'm thinking then specifically about pause, an essay I have sent to all my girlfriends and many of my male friends as well. And I read it often. It opens with a cryologue. Can you tell me a little bit about that essay and about the cryologue and why you wrote the essay pause? about menopause? Well, I can. Um, 
The cryolog is very real. It's from a journal page that I kept in April of 1998. I like visual components, so uh, I, um, I received a letter from England asking, I don't remember the magazine, but they asked me if I would contribute an essay to the magazine and I said yes, but then they told me that the magazine was for women and by women and no men were allowed to publish in the magazine. And it made me really angry. I just, it just made me angry that they were setting themselves apart and aside. I can, you know, am I a feminist? Yes. Am I a radical feminist? No. Where I'm going to exclude and refuse to include men. I think that's going too far. So I was a, a little missed. And I remember very clearly, I walked into my study, I sat down at my typewriter, and I wrote that entire essay. I typed it, I typed it in about 15 minutes. <laughs> I just... I said, okay, they want women, here it is. I'll give it to them. <laughs> and I wrote about my, but what welled up inside of me were my personal experiences with menopause, which were extremely devastating. And the interesting thing is I've received more response about that essay than anything I've ever written. I was getting letters and emails from women saying, this, thank you. This, this was my experience. Thank you. You didn't beat around the bush. And I think it was fear in the middle that people, not everyone has a negative experience of menopause, but those who do, I think the emotional earthquakes, which cause a complete upheaval in their personal lives, and it can cause upheaval in their professional lives, I think that comes from fear, the fear of diminishment. But if you can survive it and come out on the other side, then that fear is gone. And that's part of the beauty and joy. That fear for me is now gone. But very much did I, I felt it, very much, when I was, you know, 45, 46. Even if I couldn't consciously recognized that's what was driving driving it. Age, middle age is very hard. And then you pass beyond it and you're very comfortable in your skin and very comfortable with whatever age you are. You write in pause that after the 10 years of devastation, mm -hmm. that is menopause, there is freedom and there's freedom in invisibility. Nobody's checking you out anymore. Nobody's looking at you. And I told my mother about the essay. Uh, you know, she's in her 80s. And I said to her that, well, Mary Rufel says there's great freedom in invisibility. Well, my mother didn't buy that, but I was intrigued by it. And I want you to tell me a little bit more about the freedom of being invisible and why that's important for a writer. You know, invisibility has many sides to it. Because invisibility, for instance, of a creed or a race is an entirely different thing. That's mm. very destructive in invisibility and wrong. So we have to be very clear here. I'm talking about 
a woman's individual body. And for a woman to become increasingly invisible to the endless, endless glares and stares of men, right, is enormously freeing to be who and who you are, what you want to be, without any regard for any of that, that women feel so much pressure uh, for when they're young and they're looking for partners or mates. It makes no difference whether they're heterosexual or homosexual. They're still involved in looking, that kind of surface looking. And our culture, our our worldwide uh, in Western culture is just caught up in that. You see it in advertising, as an example. You know, you see it with our obsession with celebrities, our obsession with health, diet, food, clothing. It's It's all advertising, right? And to break away from all of that, to be able to set your own standards and ignore the standards that are driven by capitalism. I mean, no one's immune to it. I'm not immune to capitalism completely, but I'm certainly not under its power the way that my 30-year-old niece might be. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I just find it absolutely free. I'm in the margins now, and being in the margins is very freeing. It's no different than a child. A child is in the margins. You know, the first 10 years of one's life, it's sort of like the margins of life. And the last 20 years of life are in the margins of life. You know, life is for the living from like 20 to 60. You're in the... You're in the main thoroughfare. You're in the thick of things. You're in the middle of the stream. But when you're not, there's a great freedom there. When you're a little kid or an older person or eld- I'm no longer middle-aged. I'm old, approaching, I'll be elderly. What? When does elderly begin? Does it begin at 70? I don't know when it begins. I'm 68, so... but. There's something beautiful about the margin. But there are also days when I walk down the street and I I feel detached. All these people are so caught up in what's going on in their lives right now and in the larger world. And I find it's easier for me, it's easier for me in the margin to detach from that. It's easier for me to say, well, today I don't care what the news is. And that just like a child can detach, older people can detach in the same way. It's easier for me to detach and say, life is a river. It's always gone on. It will continue to go on. And I can let it go on. I don't have to swim so hard anymore trying to keep up. Trying to keep up is exhausting. And specifically, as a woman of letters, a literary person, I can't keep up with all the books that are published. I can't keep up with them. Anyone who says they can keep up with books is lying. Because there are too many. 
we can't possibly read all. You can't read everything that's ever been written and everything that's being written now. And then there's all the books that have yet to be written. And it breaks my heart that I will be dead and some fabulous, fabulous author will be born and I will not have the experience of, of reading them. But it's okay because I have had the experience of reading so many writers that I loved. And basically, the experience of sitting in front of a book that fills you with light and intense passion and joy or deep thoughtfulness, that experience is the same with with all great books. And so I love that experience, and I read to have it again and again and again. And there is a certain argument to be made that reading is a marginal experience to begin with because you can't be out there living when you're reading a book. And I have always loved those marginal experiences where I stopped swimming against the current. Mary Rufo, I have a question to you from your other colleague, Joyce Carol Oates, who I talked to on the podcast a few weeks ago. And we're going to play that question for you now. And here she goes. I'm so interested in what Mary Rufo will say. I'm wondering what the great influences on her work have been. Poetry in America is so diverse and I think it's thriving because of the internet. People are reading poetry all the time. There's something about, this is really part of a long question for Mary, whether Mary thinks that the internet and the online culture have actually helped poetry, helped the, just the experience of hearing poetry more often and very easily. I mean, in an ordinary day, I'm clicking onto poems, maybe 12 poems a day, and I think ordinarily before the internet, one would make a conscious choice to go and read some poetry in a book or maybe in the New Yorker, but it would be a conscious choice. Now the choice sort of comes to you. Do you want to click onto this and see what this poem by Mary Rufo is or Terrence Hayes? And you always say yes, you know, you sort of click onto it. So I'm reading poetry by people whom I admire enormously whom I might not have even thought about reading, you know, at that minute or, or that day. So I'm wondering if Mary thinks in some bizarre and paradoxical way that we might be actually living in an age where poetry is more read and more, more needed than any other time. Wow. That is the best argument I have ever heard for my buying a computer. Because <laughs> you know I don't have one. I know you don't have one. <laughs> I, I don't have an online life or anything. Yeah, that's the best argument for the virtual experience of poetry I've ever heard. I, I would say to her, this is wonderful news. And it makes me very happy. And I believe it. But I myself don't experience it. Because of who I am, I just don't like the online life. It just doesn't suit me. I have tried and it makes me agitated and angry and upset. And I 
I see now what I'm missing. I know that I am missing a beautiful, beautiful international spider's web. I just like being in the margins. I feel as if when I'm online, it's like swimming against the current. There's just so much. Um, I am so glad that that has been her experience. And I'm sure it's been the experience of many people who normally would not read. You know, reading a poem a day is easy. It's so easy. Um, And if the Internet has made that easier and more people who normally wouldn't read poetry are reading poetry, I support that 100%. I'm not trying to stop progress. I understand this is the world we live in, and and it's here to stay. My choice is, as an individual, knowing myself and knowing that I don't, I don't want to go there. I guess I'm stubborn. I have books of poetry on my shelf I've never read that I'm dying to read. I want to follow up on this, because you obviously, you don't have a cell phone, you don't have a computer. Oh, I have a cell phone. It's not smart. It's not a smartphone. Okay. There's no internet on it. Exactly. And you don't have Wi-Fi in your house. No Wi-Fi. Exactly. And this also makes our conversation here, uh, you know, we don't see each other. We're talking on the phone like we did before computers. But I want to ask you, you are an erasure artist. Um, Yes. Which seems like the opposite thing of, you know, than being online and searching a a computer. Can you tell our Scandinavian audience what an erasure artist is and what it is you do? I can. I can. Erasure is something where the picture does is much louder than words. If you look at a page of erasure, you get it instantly. But I will put it into words. I take a book, and in my my case, I use very obscure 19th century books that no one reads or you've never heard of the author or anything. And I use white paint to erase words, leaving only the words I want. So I am creating a new text on the page out of maybe... 10 or 12 words on two facing pages. I'm using an old text to create a new text. And I look at it as a poetic form. And it's a form in which you can only use the words in front of you on the two facing pages. You cannot use any other word. That's the rule. Although I do cheat. If there's a word I really want and it's not there, I cut it out of another book and paste it onto the page. Is that allowed? Oh, yes. I cut it out and paste it on the page. I also add images. I'm juxtaposing images and text more and more. So it's text, but it's basically visual art. I mean, it's something to to behold, to look at, you know, to look at. And I have a library of about 350 books that are all cut up and destroyed that I use for text and image in my erasure work. And I call it my fodder library, F-O-D-D-E-R, fodder, like what you would feed an animal, fodder. 
I, it's my father library, uh, to go back to animals eating books. I am an animal, I'm a mammal, and I eat these books from my erasure. I clip out pictures, I clip out words or phrases, wonderful phrases like the cloud of witness or odd moments, adventures with bluebells, you know, whatever. Um, sometimes, you know how people write in the margins of books, especially students? They write in ink when they're students. I love looking at that. It's so silly and so funny. The things they write in the margins when they're in class. So I collect these old poetry books. I, I find them at thrift stores. And I like to cut out the marginalia. And I might use that, glue that on an erasure page with some comment that I've made by erasing. Mary Rufo, I wish we could talk for, you know, hours and hours, but I want to end by asking you about one sentence that you've written mm -hmm. about a sentence. So this is the quote. You write, this is what Ezra Pound learned from Ernest Fenolosa. Some languages are so constructed, English among them, that we each only really speak one sentence in our lifetime. Can you tell me a little bit about what that means? Well, if you start with the first words that you ever spoke, whatever they were, dog, mama, papa, dada, you start with the first words and you end with your final words, the last words you speak before you pass from this life. It could be one long sentence if you used a lot of semicolons Do you have semicolons in Norwegian? We do, indeed. Well, if you used semicolons and colons and commas, it would make one long sentence. We're all speaking just one long sentence. Mary Ruffel, thank you so much. This has been a very special hour of talking to you, and I hope that we can wish you welcome to the stage at the Literature House here in Oslo very soon. When all of this is over and we can meet in person and shake hands and continue the conversation with other people, with each other, continue the one long sentence that we started today. Thank you so much, Mary Ruffel. I hope that day comes, but if it does not, I will not be afraid. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you very, very much. This podcast was produced by the House of Literature in Oslo. In our show notes, you can read more about what Mary Rufel and Lynn Ullmann talked about and see some of Mary's own erasure poetry. Remember to subscribe to our podcast and tune in for the next episode, which will be out in November. Produced by Fremantle Podcast.